Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1181, air date March 15th, 2023. Good evening, everyone. It's Dr. Shiva Ayadure. Today we have a really, really um, important topic that we're going to talk about. Uh, it's going to be sort of a legal systems analysis, and I have a, a legal scholar with me, Paul Clark, Professor Paul Clark, and I'll introduce him. But the title of the topic is why it's unconstitutional to prevent a naturalized citizen, um, U.S. citizen, to become president. That's what we're going to talk about. There's been uh, this has been widely discussed for many years, but um, many of you know that I've decided to put together an exploratory committee uh, to explore my running for president. I'm a naturalized citizen. And so the question comes up, uh, why should I be prevented uh, from running? And the reality is it's actually unconstitutional to prevent a naturalized citizen to be president. And you're going to learn why today in the discussion that uh, my friend Paul Clark and I are going to have. So, Paul, Paul, welcome. How are you? Thanks, Dr. Shiva. Glad to be here. I'm doing well. Yeah. So, Paul uh, and I recently met um, online because Paul had uh, done many, many years ago a very uh, thorough legal analysis of why it's unconstitutional. So um, to frame this discussion as people are joining, we're going to do the following agenda. I'm going to give a uh, Paul's going to give a little bit of introduction of himself, his background. Um, It's it's a it's a pretty deep and rich background. Um, And then I'm going to give a little bit of background on uh, many of you know, my electoral run uh, for U.S. Senate and the other things and and my uh, uh, decision to create an exploratory committee to run for U.S. president. And then we're going to dive deep into the paper Paul wrote and his analysis, which really lays it out how absurd and frankly silly it is that there's a two-tier system uh, between naturalized citizens and uh, native-born citizens. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So welcome, everyone. We'll um, uh, have this discussion. Paul has to end. Paul, you got to end at uh, 8 p.m., right? Yeah, I had another uh, commitment at 8, unfortunately. Okay. So. We may do a follow-up, but we want to keep it uh, very, very focused so we can get across these points. So let's begin by, Paul, um, please introduce yourself and um, give a little uh, bit of uh, people on your background, your history, and, and your, you know, uh, your sort of your rich history in a bunch of areas. Okay, well, uh, so going back uh, quite a ways, back to the 80s. Now, when I was an undergraduate, I was in the reserves in the Marine Corps. And when I got out of, uh, when I graduated, I should say, I went into the Marine Corps active duty for a couple of years. I was in the Persian Gulf War in 91. After I got out of the Marine Corps, I went to graduate school uh, at the Catholic University of America. I got a PhD in philosophy. And during the summers, I went up to Alaska and worked as a commercial fisherman, traveled around Alaska, which I enjoyed quite a bit. But anyway, uh, so after I got my PhD, I worked for a few years for a nonprofit organization that actually dealt with some of the issues that we've been talking about, uh, some legal issues. Uh, but then I went to law school. I went to University of Chicago Law School, got my law degree. And uh, after law school, I clerked for state Supreme Court and federal court of appeals. And then I uh, worked uh, for the public defender in Alaska for several years. Then uh, since then, I've, I've been in basically private practice. I worked for a couple different law firms and for the last 10 years or so, I've had my own firm and I've also been teaching. I'm an adjunct professor at Hudson County Community College. Uh, So I've been uh, practicing law and teaching for about the last 10 years. 
So that kind of bring you up to speed on my my whole history. Uh, I think it's, but Paul, you've also clerked. You clerked at the Supreme Court of Alaska and also in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. And so those are no no small feats. But well, um, so so Paul, uh, just briefly to let the audience know how I got involved in this in our discussion. Uh, very briefly, people know that I've had a rich history um, in science, uh, you know, engineering, inventing, but also politics as an activist. I've been an activist since I was a 16, 17 year old kid. Um, I broke from the left and right narrative many, many years ago. Um, uh, I never thought I'd participate in electoral politics as I come to the conclusion that the, the system was essentially created to make sure that only the insiders get in. But anyway, uh, in 2016, I decided to run against um, uh, someone called Elizabeth Warren, and our campaign slogan was only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian, which took off. Um, it had it had a lot of play. Uh, we, You couldn't leave Massachusetts without seeing a picture of me and Elizabeth Warren with that sign. And she was forced. We're the ones who forced her to take that DNA test. It wasn't Trump. Trump took credit for it, but it's, it was we who did that. And they had to sprinkle in, I think, some Peruvian genes to even get her to one out of 104.8. But anyway... Uh, after that, we decided we'd run as Republicans, and you would think the Republican Party would embrace someone like me, having come bottoms up. But uh, in the Republican primary, they decided to run um, someone, they recruited someone to run against me, yeah. uh, primarily because we were a bottoms up movement. We had 3,000 volunteers on the ground, we had 25,000 lawn signs. And by all accounts, on September 1st, 2020, the goal was uh, even the Republicans admitted that I was going to win. And then people can read about it. We exposed the election fraud in Massachusetts, leading us to understand that Twitter had a backdoor portal, which led to me being deplatformed. Um, and then I was recently put back on December 2020. Nothing has frankly changed with Elon Musk. OK, he's just a, a unfortunate worse version of it, hiding under the cover of free speech. But regardless, um, I've had whenever I do my lives, people say, hey, Dr. Shiva, you should run for president, you know. The Senate is sort of it's too small of a seat. You have a global reach. And over the last five years, we've created a movement called Truth, Freedom, Health, which really uh, teaches people the science of systems to look beyond left and right and take a systems approach and really look at things rationally. Um, and that's what and we have about 350,000 people all over the planet. Over 200, 300 million people know about our movement. So um, so. Given all the feedback I got, Paul, I said, well, um, why shouldn't I run for president? You know, and I always have felt that it never made sense. You know, it's like the stigma of being a second class citizen. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing research and uh, Michael Dorf, you know, people go read on Wikipedia. Um, he says, oh, well, you know, this will ultimately have to be settled through a political process because there are a lot of gray areas. And then I got referred to your paper. Um, and I thought it was the most cogent legal analysis that was done, which really lays it out how this is really a violation of, you know, uh, equal protection um, and essentially due process. So I thought we'd walk through your paper, Paul. And um, and I think, um, first of all, I thought it would be good for people to understand is I know you're, you started where you said in your thesis work, looking at the 11th Amendment, that led to you through a process to look at the Fifth Amendment and the 14th Amendment. But maybe we can start with Paul. Um, we had an earlier discussion. Uh, I think the key thing is if you can point out that the Constitution is constantly changing, right? Right. 
Um, and that's something we all need to embrace and accept. So maybe you can talk about that, Paul, the constitution, um, how it sort of came to be, you know, very briefly leading to the fifth amendment. Right. So whether you like it or not, frankly, the constitution is constantly being reinterpreted, right? I mean, that's just how it's been really from the beginning. In fact, we, you know, one, we talked about the 11th amendment. So 11th amendment, just those people that aren't familiar, the 11th amendment basically says an individual cannot sue a state in federal court, right? I mean, as simple as that. I mean, we could give you the exact quote, but that's, that's the bottom line. Now, uh, and again, one of the reasons the Constitution is changing. So when the Constitution was first adopted, the Federalists assured everyone that states were sovereign. They couldn't be sued in federal court. This was a big concern because uh, anti-Federalists in particular, those people were, were skeptical about the Constitution, were concerned that the Constitution gave the federal government too much power. And they were concerned about the federal courts. And the, and the, the Federalists said... Courts will never tell states what to do. Don't worry about it. States are sovereign. Well, there was a case just a, a couple of years after the Constitution was adopted. It was, it was called Chisholm versus Georgia, where this gentleman Chisholm sued Georgia and, and basically uh, got a judgment against Georgia. And there was outrage across the country. And they passed the 11th Amendment, which was, of course, the First Amendment after. the. No, Paul, he, he, he sued them in federal court, right? He sued. Them in, yeah, he well, actually he tried to sue them in different places, but he he uh -huh. but yeah he sued them in federal court. Sued them in federal court and uh, supposedly won. Uh, and now there was a, there was a famous dissent by one of the justices, Justice Arendel. But anyway, um, but there was a famous dissent. And but in any event, the long and the short of it was just to show you how the, how this works. Even though the Constitution appeared to say states were sovereign, you couldn't sue states in federal court. Uh, almost immediately, there was such a thing, such a thing happened. And there was an outrage. The country said, wait a minute, how can you do this? And the 11th Amendment was quickly adopted to say, no, you can't sue states in federal court. Uh, now, the funny thing is, again, about the 11th Amendment, it doesn't say you can't sue states in federal courts. It says the Constitution should not be interpreted to be to mean that you can sue states in federal courts. So it's a little funny the way they did it because they didn't want to concede that Chisholm versus Georgia was right. They thought it was wrong. They wanted to, to sort of clarify this. So, but again, it's just one example of how these things go back and forth. We have one understanding, then the court reinterprets it. Then uh, there's an amendment passed, and then the courts have chipped away at the 11th Amendment. So again, you may under, you, everyone probably thinks, well, sure, you can sue states in federal court. No, what you do is you sue the governor in federal court. So if you want to sue a state, you just don't name you know, uh, the state of New Jersey, you named the governor of New Jersey. And you say, well, it's not a suit against the state, it's a suit against the governor. And so that's the way they, they've kind of played these games. But again, the point is it's constantly evolving, right? So, so they, you know, the court reinterprets things and then political process plays through a certain way and certain things happen. And, and one of the areas, of course, is this concept of due process, now, due process is a very, very old idea. Well, well, the main thing you've talked about the 11th Amendment, I just want to, the reason you brought up that 11th Amendment is to just say, look, the Constitution itself evolves. Right. And what they have about an amendment at one point can actually change over time. But the key point is you're making aware that that law is a living organism. It's not just fixed, fossilized at some point in time. It's constantly changing. That's well, a, yeah, constitutional law in particular. Now, some areas of law never change. Yeah. Property law has been the same for the last 500 years. <laughs> mm -hmm. But 
constitutional law is constantly changing and evolving over time as, again, new decisions come out. I mean, again, like, for instance, we, we, we've seen about abortion law. And again, what side you're on doesn't matter. But the point is, you know, the court has interpreted abortion one way, then another, then another way. They go back and forth. So th th this is just the way it is. Whether you like it or not, you know, th that's the way our legal system has worked since the very beginning. And so that, that's just the reality, right? So, you know, there's never any sort of settled issues. There's always, somebody can always come back and say, well, wait a minute, we, we want to take another look at it. So, so, so you're right, it is an evolve, kind of an evolving organism, if you put it. So now let's go to the Fifth Amendment in that context, Paul, go ahead. Yeah, so, so I was saying the Fifth Amendment says that uh, no one shall be denied life, liberty, or property without due process. This is called the Due Process Clause. Now, there's other sections of the Fifth Amendment, but in any event, uh, I was saying this idea of due process is itself uh, a very fluid concept. In fact, the Supreme Court has said due process means the process that is due in certain circumstances and given the type of interest that's at stake. So if the interest is greater, you're entitled to more process. If the interest is less serious, you're entitled to less serious. And again, this is a very fluid kind of a judgment call. Nobody quite knows. But again, I was starting to say it's, it's a very ancient idea, really. In fact, it goes back at least to Magna Carta. In fact, it goes back even further. It really goes back to Roman law, right? I mean, the Romans had this idea that there were certain processes or procedures that needed to be followed for any kind of system that called itself a legal system and purported to, you know, follow rules. So one of the famous examples of this, the Romans believed that part of due process was people had to be informed about laws. You couldn't have secret laws. You couldn't pass a law and keep it a secret and then prosecute somebody for doing something that they couldn't have known uh, was illegal. Now, this is actually a big issue today because we have thousands and thousands of laws and there's so many of them you can't even know what, what's legal or legal, illegal anymore. But anyway, so the Romans had this idea that we need to tell people what the law is. So the tradition in ancient Rome was they would post the laws in the marketplace. Huh. Anybody that wanted to know could go to the marketplace right in Rome and you'd look at the laws and you could say, OK, well, oh, gee, it's illegal to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now, back then, the legal system was much more easy than it is today. There weren't, you know, 10 million laws back then. But anyway, but um, so so you'd go to the marketplace and you'd look and you could read the law. Now, if you were a citizen, everyone that lived in Rome, could, if you read Latin, you could go and you could read. Right. So one of the things that started to be done, there, there, there's uh, stories told about Nero and Caligula, some of these emperors, even they figured they had to follow due process. So what would they do is they would put the new law that they wanted to pass in little tiny type or, you know, print and put it on a piece of parchment and they'd, they'd climb up on a ladder and post it so high on the wall that nobody could read it. <laughs> And they'd say, we've given the citizens due process. After all, we posted law in the forum. <laughs> Not only that, they, they'd post some, some uh, soldiers at the bottom of the wall to make sure nobody climbed up so they could actually read what was written on the laws. And then, of course, the, you know, Caligula, and again, Caligula and Nero were the ones that's accused of this, that allegedly they did this. And then they'd go and they'd confiscate your property. they say you violated the law because, you know, we pa I passed this new edict that says, you know, you can't sell whatever you can't sell weed on sundays or something again i'm just making up the example but yeah and then they'd confiscate the the property and say well, the you violated thing, the law the key thing here paul's due process is something that's existed for time immemorial yeah this is a basic idea it's like yeah look, and, and that you as a citizen of some 
Rome or United States or whatever it is, have certain rights to be right. told how you're going, how the law will, will treat you. And yeah, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have called it a right back then, but anyway, but there were certain processes and procedures that was basic to any legal system. So that's the basic idea of due process. And that's the Fifth Amendment. And that's really what the Fifth Amendment instantiated. Yeah. Right. Right. So so when the Fifth Amendment uh, was first passed, this was really trying to make explicit this very ancient idea. And, and, and again, a little bit of a background to this. So, of course, there was no originally there was no Bill of Rights in the Constitution. And the Federalists, the people that passed, that originally passed the Constitution, said, well, we don't need this. They said, look, due process, of course, there's due process. Everybody knows that. That's been around for forever. We all know people are entitled to due process. Nobody denies that. But the Anti-Federalists said, no, we want it explicit. We want something, an amendment that says that the, the government will not take away your property without due process. And, and, and Paul, just educationally, for the, the Federalists, by and large, were into like a big centralized government. The Anti-Federalists were into state rights and basically, you know, the concept of decentralization, by and large. Well, a little bit. Again, it's, it, yeah. it's a little bit anachronistic to speak of it that yeah. way because... I mean, the central government we have today, I mean, you know, the, the Federalists, and, you know, back then would have been, I think, shocked by the, yeah. the level of government today. But by and large, yes, the, the, the prior to our Constitution, of course, we had the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation uh, went into effect in 1781. And the, the, the anti-Federalists, so one side thought the Articles were great. They wanted to stick with the Articles, basically. They thought that was fine. The Federalists wanted a stronger central government. They wanted a, a, a system that, that would allow more power, essentially. So under the Articles, people they, they voted by states. And co so Congress existed. Congress passed laws, but Congress voted by state. So And you had to get the, the, the vote of nine states to pass a law. It was hard to get nine states out, you know, out, of, out of 13, right? So you had to have more than a majority. So it wasn't easy to get nine states. The new constitution, of course, voted by individuals and you had, you know, and you didn't vote by state anymore. You voted by individuals. So it was easier and you only needed a simple majority for most things. Right. So, again, the basic the new constitution did provide for the federalists thought it would be it would be stronger, it would be easier to respond to things. And obviously, we also had a, a much stronger president under the articles. Uh, you know, the, the president of the Senate was much weaker than today. It wasn't the kind of, uh, you know, very powerful president. Although, again, our president today is much more powerful than, than they would have thought back then. But anyway, so yeah, so basically the idea was the anti-federalists just wanted to stick with the Articles of Confederation. The federalists wanted a new constitution that would give essentially more power uh, and control to the federal government. Um, you know, but again, they were still basically wanted more or less decentralized. So this was this was the, the, the dispute uh, back in the 1780s, in the late 1780s. So again, this is how the, the, the Fifth Amendment comes about. The, the anti-federalists say, we think there's too much power to the central government, and we want to at least have some assurances that uh, the federal government is not going to take more power than it, than it, than it can get, you know, than, than it should have. And so one of these provisions was the Fifth Amendment. And the Fifth Amendment, again, has a new, uh, several different provisions. Uh, but the, the, the one you were talking about is called the Due Process Clause. It says, uh, you know, the, the government shall not deprive any person of life, liberty, property without due process. 
And again, that, that wasn't really all that controversial. It was a question, do we need it or not? But you know, nobody at the time thought that was a crazy idea. Well, of course, people have due process. Now, uh, so, so again, the, the basic idea, though, again, of, of the argument of the, the natural born citizens clause, and again, I'll get into more specifics, but just to, to give you the quick overview. Right. So Article two of the Constitution involves the powers of the president. So Article one is the Congress. Article two is the president. Article three is the courts. Right. So Article two also sets the qualifications for president. So the qualifications for president, it says that the, the, the president, uh, only a a natural natural born citizen or someone who's a, who's a, was at the time was a citizen of the United States is eligible to be president. Right. So, again, that we call that the natural born citizens clause. It says that a basically a naturalized citizen can't be president. Now, the Fifth Amendment has been interpreted to prohibit discrimination based upon national origin and to, and to prohibit discriminating or treating people differently based on whether they're natural born citizens or naturalized citizens. And again, we can get into more why they, they came to that. But the bottom line is the Supreme Court has said consistently now for 75 years, the Fifth Amendment does not allow either the states or the federal government to treat naturalized citizens and natural born citizens differently. You can't do that. That's contrary to the Fifth Amendment. So, again, the basic idea is, well, if Article 2 says you treat naturalized citizens and natural born citizens differently, well, the Fifth Amendment, which amended the Constitution, says you can't do that. Well, then you can't do that anymore. So that's the basic idea. If the Fifth Amendment prohibits that kind of discrimination, then it it doesn't allow the, the, the either the federal government or the states to do it, regardless of what Article Two says. So again, that's the basic. We, again, we can get into more specifics of how they came to that, but that's the basic. So, idea. Paul, just to just to sort of summarize some of the history, prior to 1788, before the Constitution really came to be, right? We had the Articles of Confederation, right? Yeah. Yes. It started around 1776, 1778, right? It was how these states started coming together and, and they laid out some framework for how they would work together. Right. Yeah. They, and, that was the, the, the yeah. first constitution was the Articles of Confederation. It, and we have to remember, at, and just to give the milieu of that time, the country had gone through a revolutionary war. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a fledgling democracy. It's an infant democracy, right? It, right. It, it's not even, you can even say it was sort of a, full you know government a nation it was just start it was sort of a something just coming out of its nest in some ways right, right. and so obviously there were concerns that you would have you know the british or whoever it was um seizing power coming back into power in several right. ways right yes but about 15 years later some sometime later right um 1787 the constitution comes to be right with its bill of rights and these amendments that you're referring to Right. Now, the bill of, yeah, the Bill of Rights actually comes in a, a couple of years later, but a couple of years, a couple of years later. But but the point is that we had this thing called the Articles of Confederation, which is very very old, written at a time when this democracy is just emerging. It's a infant democracy, and they had this provision, Article Two, which defined the qualifications of a president, right. which said it had to be a natural born person, right. and or people who were given citizenship through some citizenship citizenship. Right. They were, at, they were already citizens at the time that the new constitution. Was right. Yeah. Fast. That, now you go to the constitution comes into be, you have the fifth amendment. And what you're referring to is that because we go to the core of our discussion today, that 
things are evolving, right? Interpretation takes place. The law is a moving organism. By 1950s, as you, I, I brought up the document that, um, the scholarly document that you wrote, which is limiting the president to natural born citizens violates due process. In that document, you articulate the fact that there were various important precedents, the bowling, um, uh, versus versus, sharp. yeah, versus sharp. Versus yeah, sharp. Bowling versus sharp, yeah right? that was a very, very important milestone in constitutional law relative to this discussion, because it basically said that the, the interpretation was that you cannot, it was really the hallmark of saying you cannot uh, discriminate people um, by their national origin. Correct. Right. And, and and maybe you can. And so that really and then there were several other um, uh, Supreme Court rulings based on that. Right. But fundamentally, as, as you share in this document, that it basically connected the Fifth Amendment, which was due process, with the 14th Amendment, right. which is about equal protection at the state level. And it basically, in some ways, equated them. Right. It exactly. said that due process uh, implicitly implies equal protection in the Fifth Amendment. And the 14th Amendment equal protection also implies due process at the state level. Basically, equated right. them. Right. Correct. It was, it was sort of a reversible equation in some ways. Yeah. Let me, let me try. Yeah. Let me try and explain a little more how that how that came about. Yeah. So, so again, the Fifth Amendment does not say anything about equal protection. The Fifth Amendment says that the federal government may not deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process. Now, after the Civil War uh, in 1868, the 14th Amendment is passed. Now, the 14th Amendment also says is identical to the Fifth Amendment. It says no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process. And then it adds, nor shall any state deny any person equal protection of the law. So we have, so we have one section that's identical to the Fifth Amendment, a new, new section that's, that goes beyond what's at least explicit in the Fifth Amendment, which is this equal protection clause. Now, initially, in fact, for fairly the entire 19th century, Congress passed lots of statutes discriminating against people on the basis of national origin. Again, not the no one's defending it or you know whatever, but that's just the reality. I mean, there were and I think give give, give them some examples, Paul. Like b blacks could not be citizens, right? Yeah. So so under the Citizenship Act of 1790, the very same people who passed the Fifth Amendment, while they were passing the Fifth Amendment, they were also passing the Citizenship Act. So 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 the first Citizenship Act passed under the new Constitution. That is, you know, after the articles went out, the Citizenship Act of 1790 specifically said that only whites could become naturalized citizens. You know, non-whites were not permitted to become U.S. citizens under the Citizenship Act of 1790. Uh, and again, I mean, that's just what it said. Again, I'm not, I'm not here to defend it, obviously, that we see today. How could they think that? But that's what they said. The very same Congress that passed the Fifth Amendment said this. And then we also had the Chinese exclusion laws. And again, under the Citizenship Act of 1790, Again, non-whites could not be citizens. Chinese and Japanese and Africans and, you know, all these other, they couldn't be citizens. So at the time, they did not think that the Fifth Amendment pro did prohibit discrimination based upon, you know, race or national origin. Now, again, what, what changes with the 14th Amendment is the 14th Amendment explicitly says that the states have to provide both due process and equal protection. So what happens is by 1954, in this very important case, one of the most important cases in history, Boeing versus Sharp, 
Uh, in fact, it was it was decided the same time as Brown versus Board of Education. We all know that as well. One of the most important cases, the Brown versus Board of Education said that states could not discriminate against people on the basis of race. Right. Very, very famous case. So the Supreme Court says, well, wait a minute. We how are we, and again, this is kind of the thinking. Right. How can we say the states can't discriminate, but allow the federal government to discriminate? And they say, well, that, that doesn't we can't do that. So what the, the Supreme Court says in 1954, Bowling versus Sharp, is, well, in 1968, we had this thing called the 14th Amendment. It specifically equates equal protection with due process. So even though, and this is essentially what, what almost explicitly what the court says, even though the Fifth Amendment does not mention equal protection, we now understand that equal protection and due process are inextricably linked. So therefore, the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, we, the Supreme Court in 1954, now interpret to include equal protection of everybody. Now, again, we can get into what is protection, but the, the long and the short of it was they said equal protection means that at very least you can't discriminate against people based upon race or national origin. Uh, and of course, that also included for, well, later again, there was a case about 10 years later that we can talk about Schneider versus Rusk that yeah. applied that to citizen versus non-citizen. Essentially, they said discriminating against naturalized citizens, treating them as second class citizens is is discriminating based upon national origin, basically. And that's illegal. We already said in uh, Bowling versus Sharp, the federal government can't do that. And so in, in Schneider case, they, there was there was a statute that had tried to revoke citizenship for natural born citizens if they lived abroad. So in other words, you come to the United States, you become a naturalized citizen, you move someplace else. They were going to revoke the citizenship, but they said, well, wait a minute. Congress can't revoke your citizenship. They, so the, the implication was they said there was this stigma that naturalized citizens were somehow less trustworthy, right? They were really second class citizens under this statute. And the Supreme Court, again, in, in the Schneider case, says that's unconstitutional and violates the Fifth Amendment to discriminate against people because they are naturalized citizens. They said you have to treat natural born citizens and naturalized citizens the same. You can't discriminate. Well, well I thought that, that the Schneider ruling combined with bowling essentially sort of hits this out of the park. It pretty much nails it that you cannot have a two class citizenship. No, exactly. Yeah. That, that's what they say. I mean, it's very explicit. Yeah. yeah, that's why I thought your analysis of that was right on. I mean, it just nails it. Right. So, you know, if 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 that is the law and, and that is the law. Now, again, Congress, uh, you know, could, could could try and pass a constitutional amendment. There's other you know, there's other ways you could go about it. Um, but as the law currently exists, as the Supreme Court has interpreted the Fifth Amendment, it's very clear you can't that, you know, the federal government cannot discriminate on the basis of, of, of national origin or, you know, citizen naturalized versus citizen by birth. And if that's true, and again, the Fifth Amendment amends the earlier Constitution, if there's a dispute between the unamended Constitution and the amended Constitution, of course, the amendment takes precedence. You have, a, and again, you know, some of the examples I talk about, like, you know, we, we for a while, we had the Prohibition Amendment, but it was repealed. There was a later amendment that repealed the, the Prohibition, right? And so, you know, um, amendments amend the earlier constitution so it's really not uh, you know shocking that we find that a later part of the constitution will 
change something that happened earlier. So really, that's that's the simple argument. The, the Article Two says only naturalized uh, or natural-born citizens can be president, but the Fifth Amendment uh, says that's uh, that's that's illegal. It says you can't do that. And so again, it's, it's very straightforward. So you know, um, this has obviously never gone to the Supreme Court. This this issue, I don't think it's ever been a, addressed by. A court of appeal, as far as I know, I haven't I haven't looked recently unless something happened in the last you know a few weeks I haven't heard about, but I don't think I think I would have heard about it. There's been a couple of cases at the district court level that have kind of toyed with the idea, but they haven't gone very far. Uh, but again, the 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 president at this point seems to be quite clear that the so-called natural born citizens clause is unconstitutional and violates the Fifth Amendment and is unenforceable and should not be enforced. So if someone wanted to uh, you know, run for president who's a naturalized citizens or a naturalized citizen, he or she should not be treated as a second class citizen. In fact, uh, I talk about in my article, the, the courts often say we have this idea and law of standing. So standing means that you're able to stand up and say, hey, I object. I don't like this. You know, as you can challenge something. Right. So generally to have standing, a law has to affect you in some way. So they, the, the Supreme Court has said repeatedly in discriminatory type of laws that discriminatory laws stigmatize an entire class of people. And they've said repeatedly people can stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, this law stigmatizes me. This law should be thrown out. And that's really all it takes in this context to, you know, to again have standing. Uh, but obviously also if someone was interested in running for, you know, running for president, that would even give them even more standing. Because you can say, well, now it really affects me because I want to, you know, run for office and I'm not being allowed to do that because of, you know, pro presumably, you know, if someone were to, to try and get on the ballot. Now, as, as you know, and probably your, your viewers might not know, you know, to get on the ballot, you have to go state by state and have different uh, qualifications. And uh, I have no doubt that many states would, would just not allow a non-citizen to get on the ballot. They'd say, sorry, you don't meet the qualifications. We're not going to allow you to get on, the, even if you have all the, the signatures. So a lot of states, you need a certain number of signatures, you know, maybe 3,000, 5,000, whatever it is. But you can have all the signatures and they, the secretary of state might well second. Again, I can well imagine just say, no, we're not going to let you be on the ballot because you're not a citizen. And clearly that would give a person even greater standing. Uh, but as I said, I don't know you even need to go that far. One needs to go that far. I think a person could have standing just by being a second-class citizen, right? We shouldn't yeah, Paul, have what, 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 country, right? I, I think what's interesting is, I mean, this is sort of an aside, but, um, you know, if you go back to the origins 250 some odd years ago, when that Article 2 was put in place, um, and, you know, we can go discuss it, the details of the history, but by and large, the sort of the broad swath of this was to make sure, let's say the British, some noblemen or some prince could not get back into power. Um, you know, they had to be natural born. Right. What's sort of ironic is when we look at the two idiots, Megan and who's the other idiot, Prince Harry, who are sitting here and, you know, they, they sort of play these two games. Oh, they are against the monarchy, but yet a couple of weeks ago, they said that they want to make sure that their children who are born here, I think one of them is born here, yeah. will have the title of prince and princess. Yeah. So just think about what this means. This means that it's likely a prince of England or princess could run for office and get the presidency, but I couldn't run for office, who's actually, you know, a naturalized citizen.
Right. It would it sort of would be very ironic if that happened because it would be antithetical to what the founders wanted. They didn't want noble people being in power, right? Or the elites. Yeah, no, yeah I agree. It's, it's really silly. In fact, I, I mean, frankly, I, I suspect, I mean, I predict, in fact, I'll predict, I think Prince or King Charles will be the last king of England. I really think he'll be the last one. Uh, yeah. It would be ironic because King Charles I was, of course, beheaded and died. Uh, oh, in, I see. That's in, right. And, and uh, so Char and Charles II was the guy that brought back was was the guy that replaced Charles I, who had his head cut off. Right. So it would be it would be a, an ironic uh, footnote to history if King Charles the Third. I don't think he'll be beheaded, but I think he may well be the last king. Of he, he may be the end. Yeah. Yeah, but but that's an aside. But anyway, uh, yeah. but yeah. So what you say is right. I, I agree. It's it, it's remarkably silly to imagine that uh, you know some some prince could run for president, but you know an actual citizen who's lived here you know his whole life or you know almost your whole life can't run. But I will say just just again to 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 express why this was the case. Now we don't exactly know. So 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 the 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 actual meeting where the constitution was put together, James Madison was the secretary of the constitutional convention. And this he is in seventeen this is in 1778. The yeah. convention is in Philadelphia, 1787, and James Madison is the secretary. He takes the notes. Well, he doesn't write everything down, <laughs> so <laughs> there are there are gaps. We don't exactly know why this was put in. We don't have we don't have a clear record. The story is that 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 many people were afraid that some nobleman from England would come over, and there was actually support for this. Believe it or not, there actually were Americans that thought it would be a good idea to bring over some prince, um, you know, and make him king. And so the United States could have a king like everybody else. So anyway, but, but there was actually some, there was some support for this. Now, this was a minority view. Most people didn't want this. And it appears that, you know, the majority said, well, let's just head that off at the past. Let's just make sure, first of all, we don't want a king and we don't want to have, you know, some nobleman, the House of Orange. In fact, this was one of the plans. Uh, the House of Orange was the, the, the royal line in the Netherlands. And of course, William of Orange had come over and become king. Uh, uh -huh. William of Mary in England had come over and become king uh, back in, I think, seven, well, after after the revolution of 1688, right? So they had brought a king over from the Netherlands to become king of England to marry Queen Mary, William of Mary. Anyway, so they're actually Americans thought that would be a good idea. They said, you know what, let's go over to Europe and find somebody like that and bring him over. And other people said, no, 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 no. And then other people thought, well, wait a minute. What if one of these guys comes over here and runs for president? Now, again, this is this is this is the the standard line. Again, we don't entirely know, but that seems to be what they were thinking. Now, now again, obviously, you know, maybe that was a concern at the time. Obviously, today that's just re remarkably silly. I mean, nobody's gonna, you know, oh, let's get the, you know, uh, uh, the king of Sweden to have, you know, his son come over here and and run for president. I mean, that's that's just not. Anything I think anybody takes. I mean, I, I, Paul, for, for me, from a practical standpoint, there's 22 million naturalized citizens in the United States. And yeah. if you think about every one of us is an immigrant, ultimately, right. every one of us, right? You True. could even argue the Native Americans are immigrants. They came from Siberia, right? Yeah, go back. But, or wherever, right? But the point is, everyone, and if you look at the values, I mean, this is sort of my position on this. When people came in on the Mayflower, or my parents came, it's a pretty significant decision to leave your country of origin and go to another country. You don't find Americans leaving the United States and going to Vietnam and becoming citizens or to India or to China, right? But you have this huge influx of people wanting to come to this country. And it's a significant decision that you make because you're giving up your family, et cetera. You come here, 
whether it was your father's father's father, right? Everyone, all of us ultimately are immigrants or children of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that that value system is at the core of what makes America, America, because you're coming together, you want to build a nation, you're leaving something behind, and um, you're coming here in some ways to the unknown, and you want to create something. Right. And in some ways, not allowing a naturalized citizen to be president, in some ways, you're losing this huge uh, asset of, right. of a whole value system that exists, you know? Right. That you know, I think I, yeah, I think you're right. In fact, I mean, I've been reading recently some of the, you know, the culture of new immigrants. They tend to be harder working. They tend to be much more patriotic than natural born citizens. Uh, you know, again, some of the, some of the studies that I've been looking at just because I, I teach another class that I've been reading some of these. Oh, decisions. please send those to me. I'd like to see those. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can talk about, in fact, I'm going to have to go soon because I said, another yeah. Yeah. but anyway, it's interesting that people have done studies have indicated that again, the naturalized citizens are much harder working, much more connected, much more patriotic. Uh, American citizens often think, well, they think they're entitled. They're just like, oh, I'm here, I'm, I'm a citizen. I get to do whatever I want. I can just lay around and do nothing and collect a, you know, collect a welfare check. Immigrants typically don't think that way. They don't think, oh, gee, I get to do nothing. I get to collect <laughs> welfare. They're like, no, I need to work. I came to this country to help build this country. So you're right. absolutely right. I think that actually in terms of the culture, the, the the attitude that that immigrants and children of immigrants tend to bring is actually much more positive than a lot of people who you know can trace their their citizenship back ten generations, but they think they can lay around and do nothing, and they're entitled just because uh, you know their their ancestors came over on the Mayflower. So so I think that there's definitely something to that. I mean there's there's you know there's 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 studies and there's you know evidence to to back you up on that. I, I mean just paul just just i know you have to get going i'll make this last point to you a personal note you know i came here in 1970 i was seven years old yeah it was snowing i had shorts on landed at kennedy i didn't ever saw snow uh five years later i went back to india to visit my grandparents and that's when i saw the stark difference going back to that little village in india with my grandparents had no shoes you know they're poor village farmers and i realized in 24 hours i would be in the united states back home yeah. And that's when I made a decision, wow, I better do something of some value or I was going to be a parasite because right. I would be afforded so much, a whole new world that my grandparents or their grandparents never afforded. So I worked my butt off. Right. And and it comes from knowing this difference. So if you're born here, some people don't even know the value of the First Amendment anymore. Exactly. So, uh, or the Second Amendment or any of these amendments. And they're willing to be bamboozled. You know, I've been tweeting away since I got back on Twitter on Elon Musk, on the fact that he allows the government's backdoor portal to be there. And Twitter 2.0, people are like, oh, well, it's a little bit better than it was before. Well, not really, because you think it's better. It's actually worse because the censorship is still taking place. Uh, to Elon Musk's world, free speech does not equal free reach, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a very sophisticated way of censorship. Mm -hmm. uh, Twitter 2.0, Silicon Valley basically said, well, we better put a new face. Um, but it's basically... Uh, old wine, new bottle, you know? Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I was hopeful that it would be better, but... No, no, because I can see it. I can see the shadow banning um, because of the fact that I'm one of the few people who's actually bringing up the fact that government has a backdoor portal into Twitter and Musk has not addressed that issue. Mm. And he was point blank asked that, hey, Dr. Shiva Idre found this in his lawsuit. What are you going to do four months ago? He right. said, oh, I'll get back to you on that. He's done nothing. But think about Elon Musk, where government ends and Elon Musk begins, nobody knows. Right. So he's a wonderful front face to act like free speech. But the bottom line is, I think in the United States with social media, the First Amendment has essentially been obliterated. 
it's government-controlled media in a much more consolidated way. Yeah, well, it's definitely consolidating. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't have enough time to get into it, but, but, I, anyway, but I'm anyway, concerned too. I'm very concerned that the yeah. Uh, the, but the I'm saying, as an immigrant, yeah. I, I I think we have to fight for that, and mm -hmm. I see people willing to sort of sort of let go and massage it away, and you can't because that's right. what made this country so significantly different than any other, any other country on the planet. Right. And so, anyway, uh, listen, Paul, thank you so much. We should do a follow up. Yeah, next thank you. We'll have to do yeah. it again. Okay. Thank you. Best of luck. Okay. Good okay. Good evening. Yeah. Okay. Talk to you okay. soon. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Yep. So anyway, everyone, that was Paul Clark, who I met recently. Paul's a legal scholar who wrote this wonderful piece um, that I'll share right here. And it's a really deep analysis. Um, as many of you know, you know, I represented myself in federal courts. So I was reading his piece and it's called Limiting the Presidency to Natural Born Citizens Violates Due Process. And the reason I wanted to do this because as you know, we have an exploratory committee really looking at my running for president. And a number of you have said that I run for, uh, that I seek that presidency seat. Many of you know, you know, we had so many victories in Massachusetts. I could argue that we actually, quote unquote, won the Senate seat because we exposed the malfeasance in Massachusetts. We're the ones who expose the election systems fraud, the fundamentals of it. We're the ones who started the Fire Fauci campaign. We're the ones in 2020 who exposed the fact that um, uh, that the entire system of relationship between government and big tech is so uh, unified and the fact that uh, we really have lost freedom in this country. So we exposed that point blank during our Senate campaign and we exposed the entire election systems issue. So I would argue that we had many victories and Massachusetts is in many ways the swamp uh, the sewer that feeds a swamp. So my considering running for president um, is really to take this national, right? And in many ways, global. And um, it's to give every citizen in the United States, and for that matter, people all over the world, to know that there, there's someone like me who is a proven fighter, an engineer, an inventor, that ultimately, isn't this the kind of person we want running, um, you know, um, uh, the, the the quote unquote freest country in the world or uh, heading that up. Okay. At least in the executive branch. So that's why I'm doing this deep legal analysis on this, because as many of you know, when I make a decision to do something, I go do it all the way. And then we have so many of you supporting us. We at least know a couple hundred million people over that all over the world watched what occurred in Massachusetts. And we taught people and we know right now that the scumbag known as Elon Musk is absolutely shadow banning me. I mean, look at this, 135 viewers. We used to have a couple thousand viewers. And all social media is shadow banning me because we're, our movement, the system that we created for truth, freedom, and health is a real threat to those in power because we do, we're not beholden to the left or the right. We're not beholden to the Republicans or Democrats. We're an independent bottoms up movement. And that's what they fear. In response to an independent bottoms up movement, they create their top-down facsimiles, right? So they found a bunch of brown people and they give them airtime, but they will not give me airtime because they know if I got airtime on mainstream media, we would win over so many people because they would see the real thing. So they keep putting these fake brown people now or they delay the truth like with Tucker Carlson. He didn't speak anything about the backdoor portal in 2020. Uh, Robert Kennedy, another scumbag, didn't say anything about Fire Fauci in 2020. 
He waited until his book came out. Okay. And that's what these guys do. It is our movement that always speaks the truth. And that's the kind of leadership I believe that the United States needs because you have all these people who are, uh, uh, you know, uh, Manchurian candidates. You know, we've seen what happened with Twitter. Twitter 1.0 was blatantly sent sensorial, right? So now they brought in scumbag Musk. He's a complete coward. He hides from me, but he's got his algorithm in place. Look, I used to write software. I know how these algorithms work. You can literally see every day they remove little by little about 100 of my followers and they shadow ban me. So 300,000 people per day who used to be able to see me can't even see my tweets. That's how afraid they are of our movement. And I'm going to mark my words, the future is not going to be social media with these dweebs running it. Mark Zucker, douchebag, or Elon Musk, uh, or any of these people. It's going to be us building a movement bottoms up. So if I decide to run for president, I expect all of you to help build this bottoms up movement, which will be offline, because you cannot do our movement online because they are so fearful of us. So be ready for that. But the bottom line is when you look at the legal analysis, given the Constitution evolves, it is absolutely not only against the Constitution, but frankly, uh, creating a caste system to saying a naturalized citizen cannot run for president, but a, a native-born citizen can. The Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment have, as uh, uh, Professor Clark has shown here, completely demolishes that. Um, and I have every right to run for president if I choose to do that. And anyone who prevents me is going to face, uh, uh, you know, fury from our movement. So that's what we should be ready for. So uh, we'll keep you abreast of what's going to take place. But those of you uh, who want to see us uh, running for president, uh, please uh, put your kind comments here. And uh, it'll be our movement because if I choose to run for president, it'll be really about working people, because it is working people who build everything, whether it's in America or in any other country, it is working people from other countries who came to America to build this country. And it is the working people who have built anything uh, on planet Earth. It has not been the elites and not, it has not been princes and kings and Kennedys and Trumps and those kind of people. It's been everyday bottoms up working people. So if we choose to run, our movement will be um, for working people, for working people uniting. So keep an eye out for that. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night. Uh, be well. And um, I'll keep you posted on what we do. And I look forward to uh, all your guys' comments um, because it'll be very important in making um, our decision. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night.